Our scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 3, beginning with the verse number 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the gleams which flash across my mind mind be not mine, but yours. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So today's is the seventh and final sermon in a summer series entitled Christ and Culture. In this series, for those of you who have been here, you know that we've looked at five models by which Christians have historically related to the various cultures or civilizations in which our faith has existed for over 2,000 years. The five models are Christ against culture, Christ above culture, Christ of culture, Christ in culture in paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. These models, as we've said, were developed in the 1950s by H. Richard Niebuhr, the theologian, who reminds us as he presents them that most Christians and churches display two or three of these models and that none of these models exist in pure form. But today we finish the series with the question, what now? Now that we're aware of these five models, how do we live as Christians, worshiping at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, Virginia, in the 21st century America? I will address these questions with a three-part sermon, the relativity of our contacts, text, the relativity of our faith, and the absoluteness of the object of our faith. So I want to begin by sharing with you several contexts in which members of our church or those to whom they are close live out their faith. A retired teacher in our congregation keeps in touch with a former student who is serving a 49-year sentence in one of the Virginia prisons. Our member and a few others in the congregation are serving as family, as supporter of faith, and as contact with the outside world for this man. In the penitentiary, this man has formed and leads a small group of fellow inmates in a weekly study of scripture. Our member who provides study materials for the group writes, The Bible study group has survived many obstacles. Members are the targets of gangs with whom they share living spaces. 
The men have rejected gang affiliation and that puts them in constant jeopardy. The administration once sent a, sent a directive barring group gatherings in the prison because they suspected gang activity. The group requested an appointment with the warden to plead their cause. They took their Bible study material and explained the nature of the group and the warden made the decision to let them continue. That was a big victory for them in that context. The prisoner who leads this group writes himself, writes, my group and I are doing pretty well. We just keep trying to stay strong and into the word. We try to meet two or three times a week, but sometimes they don't have enough officials or officers to allow us to do that. We not only talk about the Bible, he says, but we share personal things with each other. We lean on each other for help to let go of the things that hurt the most or just to clear our minds. Sometimes, maybe three times a month, we all put in a little and make a meal together just like family. We offer stamps for others to write their loved ones and a little hygiene for those who don't have income or anyone from the outside helping. He then shares some questions that he and his fellow inmates bring to the group. How can I get rid of all the bad feelings on what I've done in my past life? Being as though God forgives me, does that mean that I could do what I want? Why do I find myself to keep on sinning when I know that deep down it's wrong? Why is it that people I love don't seem to understand even when I tell them what's on my heart or mind? There is nothing unique in these questions. We all ask them. The context of these men's faith is incarceration. On the other end of, hopeless, of hopefulness, each year as a pastor I have the privilege of meeting with three or four couples whose marriage services I will be conducting during the year. We talk about the history of their relationship, the history of their families, what they want to take from their past into their marriage, what they want to leave behind, how they plan to work through things that are so important in the day-to-day -day of marriage, plans about kids and careers, money and finances, leisure and communication. We also talk about what faith means to them, what plans they have to share the faith that they have in common, or what plans they have to share the faith that differs with each. In a day in which it is easy to become bleak about the state of the world, it is always encouraging for me to get to know people who have found deep love, who are ready to make a commitment within that love that by its very nature bears witness to hope for the future. 
and who seek to live out their faith in God in conjunction with another human being, no matter what the past has been or what the future might bring. I always leave these sessions hopeful. The context of their faith is the most intimate of all our relationships. At the other end of life, a week ago, I attended the funeral service at the Old Post Chapel at Fort Myer for Brigadier, Brigadier General Malcolm P. Hooker, who was with his wife, a member of Westminster in the 1950s, and then again in the early 2000s when she became ill and passed away. He was 91 years old. On one of those beautiful Friday mornings that we have been having lately, I left my home about 7 a.m. for a group that I lead on Capitol Hill and then drove directly from there to the chapel where the service was held, which is adjacent to Arlington Cemetery. I took my seat as the service started. I didn't have to lead it, which is rare and nice. And I had the privilege of experiencing the military honors that were befitting of Malcolm Hooker's rank and service. The casket ushered in and out of the chapel, the walk behind the caisson, the army band, the riderless horse, the 21-gun salute, the folding and presenting of the flag, the playing of taps, amazing grace on bagpipes. From the time I left for Capitol Hill early in the morning until our, I arrived at my office early in the afternoon, I was intently reminded of how much in this congregation and in this community the context in which we seek to be Christian is marked by our citizenship in this nation whose colors adorn our lives like the flag draping the casket of Malcolm Hooker. In so many ways... The context of our faith is our citizenship and service. And every Sunday I get to look out and see the faces of all of you who have gathered here for worship. The sight of your faces reminds me of what in your lives you have shared with me or with others in this congregation. Your hopes and heartaches your years of caring for family far away or friends nearby, your dedication to your students, your clients, your patients, the fears you harbor, the betrayals you have known, the anxious moments which have visited you uninvited, the struggles unresolved and the struggles resolved. Apart from the role we might play in culture, the context in which all of us live is the good gift of life, its wonder and its mystery, its friendships and its fellowships. In discussing how to relate the Christ we seek to follow with the culture in which we live, Richard Niebuhr writes, each believer reaches his own final conclusion in resolutions that involve a leap from the chair in which he has read about ancient battles into the middle 
of a present conflict. No amount of study, Niebuhr says, can relieve the individual from the burden, the necessity, the guilt, and the glory of present decisions and present obedience. What Richard Niebuhr is saying is that no matter how much we have studied, read, thought about, prayed over Christ and culture, no matter how many sermons we've listened to on the topic or how many sermons we've written on the topic, we must ultimately arise from our knees, get up from our desk or our pew, make a decision about what we are to do in the context in which we live, in the situation that stares us in the face or peers at us from around the corner of the curtain. Whether we are inmate, soldier, bride, groom, family member, friend, the decisions we make are related in faith to the context in which they occur. In that sense, our decisions are by definition relative. They must take into consideration the context as much as we can humanly take into consideration the context. To understand the context, says Niebuhr, is as much the duty of the believer as to do the duty in that context. To understand the context is as much the duty as doing. Think about it. Think about how many times you've made a decision that may have national or vocational implications or that may have implications for your family in which the decision went awry because you misread the context. Think about that. We have to read the context to the best of our ability as we make decisions about what to do. So if our decisions in faith are relative to the context in which we make them, our faith itself is also relative. To say that faith is relative can at first seem shocking. But I ask you to listen to what I mean by this statement and then decide. Our Christian faith is relative in that our knowledge of God, the world, scriptures, the church is incomplete, fragmentary, partial. We see in a mirror dimly, writes Paul. In addition, the strength of our faith and belief varies from person to person, from congregation to congregation, and it varies within an individual, from season to season, from year to year, from month to month, sometimes from hour to hour. The reality is that at creation, the only tree from which we were forbidden to eat was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And even when we partook of the food of that tree, it failed to make us wise, but it only revealed our nakedness and led us to a sense of shame. The point is that there are some things that even in our faith, we are not intended to know. In fact, Niebuhr points out that we are ultimately prevented from having and therefore dictating a final answer to the question of Christ and culture. The prescribing of such an answer by any finite mind, he writes, would be an act of usurpation of the Lordship of Christ. It would involve doing violence to the liberty of the Christian and to the unconcluded history of the church in culture. Such an attempt to give an absolute definitive final answer to the question of Christ in culture assumes that our particular place in church and in history is so final that not only have we heard the word of God for us, but we have heard the word of God in its entirety. What Niebuhr is saying is that no matter how faithful and thoughtful our decisions are concerning what we are to do in culture, to claim for our decisions an absolute truth that reigns for every human being in every culture at all times in history is to proclaim for ourselves a power, the knowledge of good and evil that belongs only to God. It would be to claim for our day and time a possession of absolute truth that we have no reason to believe our time is privileged to receive above other times. In this regard, not only is the context in which we exercise our faith relative, but also our faith itself is relative. It is limited by our own human finitude. It is limited by the fact that we are that while we are a little lower than God, we are not God. So if this sermon so far seems like too much relativity for you, if it leads you to say in less colorful words than what Flannery O'Connor said, why bother? I urge you to continue listening through this final section. Niebuhr says, and I affirm, that even though decisions we make and actions we take in faith are relative to our human limits and to the culture in which we make them, the God in Christ and the Christ in God who is the object of our faith is not relative. The God in whose service we make relative decisions is himself absolute. Niebuhr describes faith as an inner attachment to an object of loyalty. 
Yet faith, he says, is not simply the subjective experience of being loyal. Faith is assurance as well. It is confidence in the object towards which our inner passion is directed. It is trust that the cause, that the object of our faith will not let us down. Where do we get this faith? This loyalty, this confidence, this trust, this assurance, blessed as it is. What is the source of this faith? The source is God alone. Specifically, Christ's loyalty to God demonstrated in the crucifixion and God's loyalty to Christ demonstrated in the resurrection. These loyalties, which we are privileged to witness and be aware of by God's grace, by God's amazing grace, are what create in us the faith we have. Niebuhr puts it this way, Faith has been introduced into our history, into our culture, into our church, into our human community, into our lives through this person and this event, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith has been called forth in us through him. And that is an act of God's grace. That is an act of God's loyalty to us. While our faith in Christ is subject to the limits of culture and our human finitude, Christ's faithfulness towards God and God's faithfulness toward Christ are not limited or finite. They are absolute. Thus, our relative faith leads us to make decisions that are relative to our culture. But it is a faith in an absolute God in whom there is no shadow of turning. The righteousness of God has been disclosed, we read earlier, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is the way we know God. That is what creates faith within us. The absolute faithfulness of Christ to God and of Christ and of God to Christ is what gives us the faith to make the decision in the world relative as both often are. So I want to close this series by being a bit personal or reflective one more time. All of my adult life, I've been aware of decisions people make, including decisions I have made, that are relative. Relative to the measure of faith I have at the time, relative to the situation in culture that I or the people I'm observing face. But all my life, I've also been around people in churches who seem to possess an absolutely clear sense of what God wants them to do. An absolutely clear sense of what the Christian course of action is on a given matter in culture. At times, 
I have admired such persons and such churches. At times I have envied such persons and such churches. At times I have doubted whether my own preaching and teaching that leaves so much room for individuals to come to decisions in our conscience about what our faith is leading us to do. At times I have doubted if my openness is a result of a defect, a weakness in my faith. If I'm open to the charge of being lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, which the seer John leveled against the church at Laodicea, in the final book of the Bible. I have worried about myself and about our tradition at times. And yet, virtually every time that I see an expression of faith that is absolute, particularly if it has no graciousness about it, I see an expression of faith that crumbles often sooner rather than later. Niebuhr writes, All our faith is fragmentary, though we do not all have the same fragments of faith. Among the many gifts that God gives gives us is the gift of other people, even people whose faith and life, and worship, and theological, and political, and ethical views are quite, quite different from ours. We have a fragment of faith, and they have a fragment of faith. When we put the fragments side by side, we are together a little closer to the wholeness of faith a little closer to the God in Christ and the Christ in God who is creator of all the fragments, who is loyal, loyal to each fragment and who is loyal to the whole. Amen.